24 hour. Everyone loves a good underdog story. Uh, the miracle on ice, right? The USA hockey team beating the Soviets back in the day. Uh, they don't even have to be true stories. Uh, Rocky Balboa going toe-to-toe with Apollo Creed. Um, any rags-to-riches story. Basically, every Disney movie has some sort of unlikely hero that somehow defeats someone or something that seems unlikely. But this morning, we're going to read the original. We're going to read the prototype. Surely this is the best-known underdog story of them all, probably also the the best-known story in the entire Old Testament. We're going to read the story of David and Goliath. One difficulty in preaching through this story is it's way longer than I remembered it being. This baby is 58 verses long. We are going to read the whole thing, but we're going to do it a little bit differently the way I will read just a little bit, I'll give a few comments. We'll read another little chunk. I'll give a few comments. And by the time we get done reading, that'll be our whole sort of exposition of the text. Then we'll spend some time at the end talking about what we, in, we moderns, should learn from this very ancient story. So let's read together. This is, it's found in 1 Samuel chapter 17. There's a Bible underneath a chair nearby. The, the verses will also be on the screen. It's on page 299 in those. If I turn my clicker on, we'll get started. There we go. 1 Samuel 17. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. They were gathered at Sukkah, which uh, belongs to Judah. And they camped between Sukkah and Azekah in uh, a Aphes Damim. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley in between them. There's the setting for this great story. Uh, pretty simple. We're, be- we're between 10 and 15 miles west of, uh, of Bethlehem. And there's high ground on both sides of a a wadi, which is a a river that doesn't have water in it anymore, a dry stream bed. That's where this is located. And in verse 4, into that low ground walks a very imposing figure. Verse 4, then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels. It was made of bronze. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. The head of his spear weighed 600 shekels. It was made of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. There's Goliath. Goliath is introduced to us as readers as the picture of invincibility. He appears invincible for a number of reasons. First, he's a literal giant. Uh, the, the height that he is, he is said to have here is nine feet six inches tall. Now, there are some Hebrew historians who will uh, tell us some other things that, that maybe 
shrink that a bit. For example, Philistine soldiers, and you can see this in Egyptian art, they wore uh, feathered headdresses or helmets with, with tall plumes. So maybe his height goes to something like that. This may not be like his uh, barefoot height, but regardless, this dude's at least near eight feet tall. He is also, though, covered almost entirely from head to toe in metal. That adds to this, this image of invincibility. Helmet, scale armor, he's even got on well, like bronze leggings. Very little vulnerability. But aside from that, he also is dressed in and is carrying the, the peak of military technology. He's got the best weapons, and they're way bigger than anyone else's. He really is, he has the appearance of invincibility. But two weeks ago, in the first half of the previous chapter, we've already been told you shouldn't always look at outward appearances. People look on outward appearances, but the Lord looks on the, on the heart so we're going to start getting a glimpse inside Goliath's heart. It turns out it's dark and violent in there. Verse 8, he, that's Goliath, he stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel and he said to them, why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and they were greatly afraid. So Goliath up in verse 4, when he was introduced to us, he was called a champion. That's the English word. There's a Hebrew word. This is the only place it gets used in the whole Old Testament. We wouldn't know what the word means except for this paragraph right here. This is what is meant by that word. A champion was not someone who won a tournament. It was a representative fighter. Goliath comes out. And he, he says, let's do this. This will be cheaper. It will be safer for everyone. Let's have this one-on-one -on -one battle. You send out your best guy. I'm standing here as our best guy. Winner take all. Whoever wins between the two of us, that will decide the battle. That's a champion, a representative fighter. Now, if you're listening to that and you start thinking, that doesn't sound like it's a very likely thing to have actually happened, then your thinker is in the right place this morning because this isn't something that happened. History, we don't have examples in history uh, of this happening, but it did. The Philistines probably think this is a safe enough bet. What do we have to lose? We've got Goliath and they don't. So it's a risk they're willing to take. Now, as we keep going through the rest of 1 Samuel, don't be too surprised when the Philistines don't hold up their end of the bargain. I don't want to ruin the end of the story, but Goliath loses. 
And they don't decide, well, I guess we just got to be slaves of Israel forever and ever. Not the way this story ends. They don't hold up their end of the bargain. When Saul and the Israelites hear this, they, they're scared. But, as we'll see, they think this is a decent idea. I mean, it would be safer. If I was in the army and thought, you know, if someone else would go out and fight one time and then I don't have to go out and maybe die, you could maybe sign me up for that. That doesn't sound too bad. doesn't sound like a bad idea at all. There's only one problem for the Israelites. They're a little short on volunteers. No one wants to be the guy to go and fight Goliath because he appears indestructible. Verse 12, now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah. His name was Jesse. Jesse had eight sons. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. The three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle. They were in the army. And the names of those three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, the secondborn to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shema. David was the youngest. Now, the three oldest followed Saul, but David had been going back and forth from working for Saul to, to go and attend his father's sheep in Bethlehem. Verse 16, the Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. Then Jesse said to David, one day his son, now take for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain, these 10 loaves of bread, and run to the camp of your brothers. Verse 18, bring also these 10 cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand and look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of how they're doing. For Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So, verse 20, David arose early in the morning and left the flock with a keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. David came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. And then David left all the stuff that he brought with him in the care of the baggage keeper. And he ran to the battle line and entered the battle line in order to talk to his brothers. All right, this part of the story just lets us know how David, the youth, got to where Goliath was. Because David was too young to be in the army. Um, we do, we're reminded that he did work for King Saul at times. Presumably when King Saul went out uh, on a military campaign, David, that's when David would go home back to tending his father's sheep. So that's how David gets to be there. We'll move on in verse 23. As David was talking with his brothers... Behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath, named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines. And Goliath spoke those same words he always spoke, but this time David heard them. When all the men of Israel saw the man, Goliath, they all fled from him. They were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said to David, have you seen this man who's coming up? Surely he's coming up to defy Israel. 
And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills Goliath with great riches and will give him the king's daughter and he'll make his father's house free in Israel. And David spoke to the men who were standing by him. David said, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should stand there and taunt taunt the armies of the living God? The people answered David in accord with what they had been saying. Just what we told you, that's what will be done for the man who kills Goliath. So as David is talking with his brothers, brings the food, drops it with the, uh, where the supplies are, goes and finds his brothers, and Goliath walks out and does his now normal, uh, boasting, challenging, uh, intimidating, inviting routine. But this time David hears it. Also by this time, we can tell King Saul has decided he'd like to take the chance. He would like someone to go and try to kill Goliath. And Saul has orchestrated a bit of a leak in the press so that the men hear what will happen for the guy who kills Goliath. He's promised great riches that will come in two ways. One, he'll get to marry the king's daughter which would um, take a, a sort of more common man and, and get him into like the pool of royalty, access to all kinds of privilege and wealth. He, it would be a long shot, but he and his, certainly his children would be in the line of kings and the su- succession plan, possibly royalty or king themselves one day. And then uh, also this freedom that Saul promises is freedom from taxes. Can I get an amen there? And uh, freedom from any kind of, of service. Now, knowing Saul the way we do, we probably can, it's probably safe to assume Saul's like, I don't have anything to lose because I'm not going to keep this into the bargain. Anyway, if my guy goes out there and gets beat, Saul's not just going to turn his nation over to the Philistines either. He also doesn't keep his end of the bargain because as we move forward, he does not let David be free from forced military service by any stretch moving forward. But that's, that's sort of the deal. Now, one other thing I want you to notice in, in this chunk of the story. Throughout the Old Testament, when you meet a new person in the New Testament, their first words are often important. Their first words often give you an insight into his or her character. And no exception here. We've seen that in this book, like Hannah's first words and Samuel's first words and Saul's first words. This is the first words of David in the whole Bible. And here's what he says. Now, he's just been told that if somebody kills Goliath, that guy will get rich and famous and all that stuff. But then David says... What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Is David deaf? Why would he ask the question that's just been answered? Here's what's going on. This is a rhetorical question. David hears 
for the first time, this this pagan step out into the wadi, into the low ground, and defy their God, God's people, the promised land. And then he hears, man, somebody, you'll get rich and famous if you go out there and defeat that guy. David says, what would have to be done for somebody to go out and shut that guy up? You need, to, you need the promise of being rich and famous to go stop someone from defying the God of Israel on Israeli soil. That's why at the very beginning we were told that land belonged to Judah. Then he says, who is this guy? Who does this guy think he is that he can stand in this land promised to us and taunt God's people right in front of God? That tells us something about David. David is, David is motivated by what glorifies and honors God, by what benefits his people. The soldiers don't get what David's saying either, though, because they just tell him again about the rich and famous part. Let's go on. Verse 28. Now Eliab, the oldest brother, David's oldest brother, heard David when David spoke this way to the men. And Eliab understood what David was saying. Eliab's anger burned against David. And he said, why have you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Shouldn't you be back doing your little menial tasks, boy? I know your insolence and I know the wickedness of your heart. You just have come down here sort of rubbernecking to see the battle and take home rumors. But David said, what have I done now? I can't even ask a question. And David turned away from him to another soldier or maybe brother and said the same thing. And the people answered him in the same way. David's oldest brother, Eliab, he understands that David is basically saying, what's wrong with you guys? Why doesn't someone go out there and fight that guy? Why doesn't someone go out there and shut his mouth permanently on behalf of God and his people? Eliab knows that's what David is saying. He thinks David's making him look bad and in in some way he might be right, though it's understandable. But notice... Eliab attacks David's heart and his motives. I know how insolent, how rebellious you are, and I know the wickedness of your heart. Now remember, why did God choose David? Because of his heart. But often, though people are dedicated to God's glory and the benefit of the others, Still, sometimes people will, uh, will attack your heart. But David keeps on asking men, why won't someone go fight the giant? Verse 31. When the words which David spoke were heard, or when they traveled around, and they were told to Saul, Saul sent for David. 
David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Don't be scared, guys. I, your servant, will go and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, you're not able to go and fight against the Philistine, for you're but a youth. That guy's been a warrior since he was your age. Verse 34, but David said to Saul, I was tending my father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after the lion or the bear and attacked it, and I rescued the lamb from its mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by the beard and beat him to death. Verse 36, I have killed both the lion and the bear, David said. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has taunted the armies of the living God. David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the paw of that Philistine too. And Saul said to David, you got the job, kid. Go and may the Lord be with you. Verse 38. And Saul clothed David with Saul's garments put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with armor. David girded Saul's sword over his army and, or armor and tried to walk, but he, had not, he hadn't gotten used to it. He hadn't tested that stuff. So David said to Saul, I can't go out there with these. I'm not used to this stuff. And so he took all that stuff off. Okay. It comes about that Saul catches word. There's finally one man in his army who's at least saying someone should go out there and fight that giant. Saul says, sounds like we got ourselves a volunteer. So he whoever's talking like that, bring him. But the kid gets there and he realizes it's not even a member of his army. It's the little shepherd boy. But as soon as David gets there, he volunteers for the job. Don't let anybody be scared anymore. Shepherd boy is here. I sign up, I'll go do it. Saul says, you can't do that. You're too little. You're too inexperienced. David says, don't let this baby face fool you. It's like, I've been a shepherd for a long time. And let me tell you, king, one time a lion attacked my flock. Another time a bear attacked our flock. I chased him down snatched him by the scruff of the neck, and beat him to death. And I'm going to do the same thing to that giant out there. Why? Because God kept those two animals from killing me then. God's got plans for me that you don't know about, King. God's going to make sure that giant can't kill me today. Saul says, what else do I have to lose? Nobody else is going to do this. He dresses David up with the best military technology the the Israelis have. David says, I can't work like this. Takes Takes that stuff off. And now the battle. Verse 40. He took his stick in his hand, his shepherd's staff, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. And he put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand. And David approached the Philistine. And the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield bearer in front of him. 
When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained David. For he was but a youth, though ruddy and with a handsome appearance, thrown in for good measure. Verse 43. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by the gods of Philistia. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. In other words, come out here and I'll kill you and won't even let anybody bury you. Verse 45. David shows the giant that the giant's not the only one who can talk a little junk. He says, verse 45, David said to the Philistines, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I'll strike you down and remove your head from you. That seems like a problem. And I will give the dead bodies, not just of you, but the army behind you this day to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. So that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. And that all the assembly behind me will know that the Lord doesn't deliver people based on human strength by sword, by spear. The battle belongs to the Lord. So he's going to give you into our hands. And then it happened. When the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, then David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. You can almost see the camera slowing into slow motion as David puts his hand into his bag and took from it a stone. And he slung it and he struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead so that Goliath fell on his face to the ground. That is how David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. And David ran and stood over the Philistine and took Goliath's sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed Goliath with it, made sure he was dead, and cut off Goliath's head with his own sword. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they took off. So here's David. Here's the famous part, armed only with, his, with a big stick and a sling, approaches the giant. Now, he may not look like much, but this is a serious weapon. This is not a kid's slingshot. The Romans would still be using slings centuries after this in the greatest army the world had ever seen. A sling could, could, uh, could throw a, a tennis ball or racquetball-sized stone over 100 miles an hour. But come on. This giant's covered in metal from head to toe. Seem unlikely? If it does, you're reading the story correctly. God, just like David said, God made sure David won. By the way, consequently, uh, first, Goliath is insulted that they send a kid out. Like, what kind of street cred am I going to get by killing this guy? 
And so he curses David using the pagan gods of Philistia. Do you know what the penalty was supposed to be according to the law? For anyone who blasphemed the God of Israel on Israeli soil. It doesn't matter if you're from there or not. Do you know what the, you know what the penalty was supposed to be? Leviticus 24, 16. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. The entire assembly must stone them. Whether foreigner or native born, doesn't matter. They blaspheme the name, the character of God. They're to be put to death by stoning. That's what David does on behalf of the whole assembly. He sort of upholds the law. David yells at Goliath, you come at me with your great size and your military technology, but I'm telling you, you're outnumbered. David kills him, runs him through with his own sword, takes no chances, cuts his head off because he's probably seen scary movies where it looks like the one's dead and then at the very end they jump. So he doesn't take any chances. Smart man, that David. The aftermath starts in verse 52. The men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron. So a lot of the Philistines survive. They get inside that city. But the, flay, the slain Philistines lay along the way to Sha'arim, even to Gath and Ekron. The sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. Then David took the Philistines' head and eventually he brought it to Jerusalem, though it wasn't this day. But he, but he kept Goliath's weapons for himself. Verse 55. Now when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? Abner said, by your life, king, I don't know. The king said, you inquire whose son the youth is. So when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul. He was still carrying the Philistine's head in his hand. I like that part. Uh, and Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. So in the, in the aftermath of David's unlikely victory, the Philistines correctly assume Israel's God is fighting on their behalf. We better get out of here. They turn tail. The route is on. And then there's a confusing part at the end here. What questions does, do these verses raise in your head right there? All of a sudden, it doesn't seem like Saul doesn't know who David is. But David worked very closely with Saul in the previous chapter. Saul liked David very much. Even in this story, we were reminded Saul used, or David used to work for Saul. So what's going on here? There may be some divinely uh, controlled confusion as God wants to teach us, teach thousands of years worth of people a lesson. But also, here's how I think of this. Saul does not ever say, go ask what that kid's name is. I think he knows his name. He asks who his dad is. Here's why. Saul's got promises he's supposed to keep. Saul's, the promise for whoever killed Goliath was the, the daughter in marriage, and then his father's whole family is supposed to be set free. So if, I'm gonna, if he's going to write the edict that keeps his promise, he won't. But he, had, he would have to, it's Jesse whose family he has to set free. So that's why he has to ask. He, before this, he's probably just the music kid. 
Now I got to know for sure who his dad is. All right, there's the story. Isn't that a great story? What are we supposed to learn? In the few minutes we have left, I want to start by telling you first what you should not learn from this story. I found this graphic on the internet from someone else's uh, sermon or teaching on this. David and Goliath, conquer your fear. I think that's the most common way this passage is taught. This passage is to show you, you don't have to be scared of anything out there. You, you just believe hard enough, God is with you, and so you are good enough and strong enough and mighty enough, and you can do anything because God is with you. Uh, Don't try to learn that lesson. We don't have that promise. That's not true. In the real world, the reason these stories are so great is because usually the Goliaths kill the Davids. Right? Usually, I mean, if it was real life, Apollo Creed knocks Rocky out in the first round. Everybody goes home and there are no sequels. Right? If you want to test, if you want to see if this is the lesson, hey, I'm a Christian. Nothing can defeat me. Give it the David test. Go find a bear. Go find a lion and try to beat it up with a stick. You know what's going to happen? You're going to be eaten. That's what's going to happen. Because you don't have any promise that that won't happen. This is not the way we're supposed to deal with our fears. There's some great ways to deal with our fears. We just don't learn it from this passage. Matt Chandler said famously, maybe the most important lesson we're supposed to learn when trying to learn lessons from this passage is this. You're not David. That doesn't mean you shouldn't identify with someone in this story, though. This story really happened, but God arranged the events of this story so that thousands of years, 3,000 years worth of people could learn from this story. And so I think we should sort of identify the characters almost like symbols, but we're not David. I think the easiest to identify is probably Goliath the big guy. Who's Goliath in this story? Well, Goliath is something that is huge, intimidating, scary, impossible to defeat. You know what the most common word is in this whole passage? Uh, it, It gets translated several different ways, but it's a whole bunch of times the word that comes across as defy, uh, dishonor, heap shame upon. That's the most common word in this story, not by accident. Goliath is that big, massive, unbeatable, scary thing that dishonors God and his people. What's that sound like in your life? I think think Goliath, if we're going to identify him as something in our lives today, Goliath is sin and death. Do you want the lesson of this passage to be you get out there and take on sin and death all by yourself? You better figure out the right weapons to use. You better figure out how to be good enough, the right religious things to go through so that you can defeat sin and death all by yourself. Good luck out there, champ. 
Is that what you want the lesson of this passage to be? No. You know what you need? A champion. You need someone who will step out into that battlefield and defeat that huge enemy that you know you can't. This story is about the gospel. This story is about Jesus Christ. It's so amazing to me. This story really happened, but we couldn't make up a story that more accurately tells the story of Jesus and his defeat of sin and death. I went through this passage and found 15 ways that David is just like Jesus. We're going to go through them quickly. Track with me here. How's how's David just like Jesus in this story? First, David was sent by his father from his home to go to the battlefield to help a bunch of people who were helpless to defeat the giant. That sounds just like Jesus. Second, second, David, though he was already the chosen one, the anointed king, he willingly came to serve and to feed the ones he ultimately showed up to save. That sounds just like Jesus. In this story, David, before he left, he made sure somebody was watching after his sheep before he left to go to the battlefield. You know why? David was a good shepherd, which sounds just like Jesus. David was motivated by what glorified God and made him look good and benefited other people much more than being rich and famous or any of that stuff. That sounds just like Jesus. When David showed up to help, David was hated by some of the people he came to save. Even his own brother hated him. That sounds, why don't you say it with me, just like Jesus. David's heart and his motives were attacked by people who did not want him to be great. That sounds just like Jesus. Before David killed the giant in his past, he did some mighty works that could even be called miraculous, that there's no way he could have pulled off if God were not with him. That sounds just like Jesus. David looked too normal, he looked too weak, he looked too unimpressive to ever be able to kill a giant like that and someday become king. And that sounds just like Jesus. David refused to fight the giant using human strength and human means. That sounds just like Jesus. David was mocked and scorned. In the moment where he was facing down the giant, He was mocked and scorned and insulted. And that sounds just like Jesus. You're losing steam. Come on. 11, David's goal in defeating the giant. Go back and read it. David said, I'm going to defeat that giant so that people can know God. So that people can know there is a real God and they need him to fight on their behalf. And he will. And he has. That sounds just like Jesus. Thank you. 12, David proved to be the stronger man who was more powerful than the strong man. He defeated the strong man and plundered his belongings. Jesus told a story like that about himself. That sounds just like Jesus. David was richly rewarded for killing the giant. Included, he was promised freedom, and being given a special 
bride. That sounds just like Jesus. After defeating the giant, though, there was still some confusion about who Jesus or who David, excuse me, who David really actually was. That sounds just like Jesus. And finally, David was already the anointed one. He was already the chosen one, even before he defeated the giant. Then he defeats the giant. And strangely, there's still this long, painful period before he's ever actually given the throne. And that sounds just like Jesus. This story is about the gospel. It's incredible. We couldn't make up a parable better than this. And God ordained these events to happen a thousand years before Jesus ever lived. Goliath is like sin and death. David is like his, in, or his descendant, Jesus. So with whom should we identify in this story? We are the people who know we can't get out of the trench and go face that giant alone. Listen, either Jesus Christ defeats sin and death on your behalf or you still have no chance. Don't enter that battlefield without your champion. Now, you might think that there's one big difference between David and Jesus in this story. There's one thing that's not just like Jesus. David survived, right? David actually defeated the giant. So did Jesus. Just David or Jesus wasn't fighting the people who tried to hang him on the cross. That was him embracing weakness like David, refusing to pick up the swords. He was just allowing those people to introduce him onto the battlefield where he would meet the last enemy, death itself. To defeat death, Jesus had to go there. And he defeated death at the resurrection. So, if you have never accepted that Jesus was your champion, that he took your sin and defeated death on your behalf, there's nothing more important for you to do. But if you've made it that far, for the rest of us, our job is to live like ding dong, the giant is dead. Okay? Warren Wiersbe used to say it this way, as Christians, we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. That means... Whatever's on the news, whatever's on Facebook, whatever makes you so mad, whatever makes you so angry and feel like, uh, you know, it does not bother me when wicked people with wicked hearts who don't know the Lord act like they are winning. What discourages me is when God, God's people act like they're winning. Folks, they're not winning. Hold on. Let me check the end of the book here. We win. You know why? Because the giant's dead. Dead, dead. Head cut off, dead. Our job is not to keep the culture from sliding over the edge of the abyss, right? Our job is to stand in victory. Sin's curse has lost its grip on me. 
And the people that are sliding over their biggest problem is not anything other than they need the same champion you and I have. Do you know Jesus as your champion? Live like it. The giant is dead. We win in the end. The only other kind of person out there is just someone who is about to fight, someday going to fight a battle. They can't win. They need our champion. Let's tell them about him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this amazing old story. Thank you for being our champion. Thank you for defeating sin and death because we stand no chance of doing it alone. Thank you for the victory that we have. And faith is the victory that has overcome the world. Thank you for the killing the giant on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand up and we'll finish this morning.